Hi, friends. Welcome to the Brave Enough Podcast. Grab some coffee, sit back, or enjoy your drive, and let's get authentic, real, and into the good stuff. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Shilkut, and I'm so excited to hang out with you today, where we're going to talk about life and work and all the messy stuff in between. So get ready. In episode 48, Sasha interviews Dr. Sharon Hayes. They discuss the career trajectory differences between men and women. Now here's your host, Dr. Sasha Shulkut. Welcome to the Brave Enough Show. I'm really excited to have a phenomenal guest on today. She is very well known in medicine across many circles of medicine, particularly for her role, not just in in cardiovascular medicine, but what she has done to look specifically at gender issues in medicine, in patient care, and also in the promotion of women physicians and male physicians and underrepresented minorities. Minorities and her work in diversity inclusion. So my guest today is Dr. Sharon Hayes. She's a professor of cardiovascular medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She is also Mayo Clinic's first director of diversity inclusion, and she is such a strong voice for so many women in medicine on social media. She's constantly putting out just amazing content. So if you don't do anything else today, follow her on Twitter. You will be encouraged. You will be challenged, and you will also become really thought-provoking um, as a leader, I think just following her content. I know that she has done that for me. So welcome to the show, Dr. Hayes. Uh, thank you, Sasha. That was a lovely introduction. Um, but uh, um, I, I do appreciate the fact that you and I have both been able to contribute in the same space um, as co-founders of Time's Up Healthcare. So I think that it, I feel like I'm on the show with a um, a sister. Oh, I love it. Maybe I love a much it. younger sister. But. <laughs> no, I love it. And I also love that you are a cardiologist because, you know, I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist that so we have several different um, paths that may cross professionally. Um, and I just, I really like the fact that you are constantly putting out content that makes me pause and makes me think. And convicts me because it's kind of like a little, you know, we need, I just love people that are the salt of the earth. And I definitely, um, once I started following you picked up on, uh, how much great data you present, but also how much truth that you present and make me think of my own bias and my own, um, career trajectory. And so today, what we wanted to talk about, what I asked you to come on the show to talk about is, you know, I would love for you to share with our listeners your own journey in medicine and tell us a little bit about yourself and focusing on the differences in, you know, careers and how that your path may look between a woman who's listening and maybe um, her male colleague. Yeah, thank you for that. And I've reflected uh, a lot on that, um, particularly in my role in diversity and inclusion. And I mentor a lot of uh, of women, as well as being in a specialty as you are that is is really predominantly men. Cardiology, when I started, was six percent women, and we're up to fourteen percent. So um, it's kind of a whoop de doo, but. <laughs> Uh, but but still in interventional cardiology, it's only five or 6% are women. And so I, I have spent that career um, in, in that space and I love cardiology. I would not have done anything else, um, but there have been unique opportunities and u- unique challenges when um, uh, you have um, 
the same challenges at perhaps at home as your male colleagues um, and are trying to make a career together because my husband is also a cardiologist, by the way. So awesome. we, we both were really busy people. We raised um, two great kids who are now young adults. And, um, and I had many uh, times during my career where what I thought I was going to be or what I thought would make me happy um, got challenged and it changed. And sometimes at that time, I was horribly disappointed or felt like a failure. Mm-hmm. And as um, as I was sharing before we, we became live, I, I, I spent some time where I would beat my head against the wall um, trying to get through. And sometimes I missed the fact that somebody had opened a door for me on the other side of the room. Mm. And so that led me to be more open to, um, I think, uncertainty in my own career, um, to not to, to actually doubt my certainty, and also to not settle, but perhaps um, embrace uh, happiness and things that I did not expect. So one thing I say is embracing serendipity, which has been a big part of my career. Oh, I love that. I love, there's so many things I want to unpack here. So why do you think that women are, are, get, can so easily get caught banging their head against the wall as you, so to speak, and missing the opportunity? Well, I think for one thing, um, many of the metrics, I, I, and I would say women in medicine and particularly academic medicine, which I know doesn't apply to every everyone, but many of those metrics that are held up to us as we're coming up through medical school and, and training um, were all developed with a, um, for a male who was either single or supported by a stay-at-home spouse. And so many of the milestones, um, the expectations for work after work um, and the, the timing of it. So at the time that an academic cardiologist is supposed to be most productive in her career is the time that honestly she needs to be most reproductive if she is going to be a mother. Mm. And so that affects um, men and women quite differentially. And, and so one of the things that I've reflected on uh, um, is that what really needs to change and one of the things that we're talking about at, at Mayo Clinic and trying to raise that conversation nationally is um, increasing flexibility across the, life, uh, uh, the lifespan, recognizing that women are the only ones who can uh, reproduce uh, and so whenever I hear uh, somebody say, well, she chose to have a baby, I say, well, somebody with her chose to, too. He just wasn't as affected by that pregnancy. <laughs> right. And, and so I, th- I do think changing the paradigm of success in medicine is, is important. And I know you talk a lot about that. Um, yes. And so, so what do you say, because this comes up all the time as a leader um, in when I'm at the table and I, I'm, I'm hearing us make decisions to choose or give opportunities. And I hear all the time, well, we don't want to ask her to do that because she just had a baby, or we don't want to put that pressure on her because she has young children. And I have to be, as I'm sure you have to be very selective on how I present myself and how, what battles I, I decide to come out of the dugout, so to speak. But what so many times I want to say, why does the job require something that a woman with small children can't effectively do it. 
Like, why does, do you know what I'm saying? Like, why can't we change the job? (laughs) Um, Right. So I think there's two points that you bring up there. So um, one is, you're right. Do we really have to make this a role that, uh, you know, let's be flexible in the role. Maybe it it does need somebody who can work these particular hours, but maybe it can be a shared responsibility. But I'm going to go back to the actual comment when people are leaders are sitting in the room and they make a decision in that room not to even offer it to that very busy woman with little kids. Because I can tell you, just as you do, we make choices. And yes, it might be hard. And yes, you know, I, I'm married to a cardiologist and I've got two little kids and it would be very hard to do that particular role. But that's what I've wanted all along. Mm-hmm. And so I would make it work because I want that. So when that decision, if you are, I would just say for any listeners, if you are in that room and somebody is talking about somebody who said, Jill would be great for that job, but boy, you know, her husband is, um, is so busy and she's got those little kids. So we let's, let's offer it to Bob. Let Jill make that decision. Yes. Yes. Because right there, what happens is, you know, the opportunity goes to Bob and not Jill and the the gap starts widening, right? Like that's, exactly. that's a small gap. Maybe it's only, let's say it's $10,000 difference in salary, but it also comes with a promotion and it also comes with opportunities for publications or speaking arrangements because basically now Bob is going to be a content expert. Yes. So that just like all of a sudden the gap begins and Jill never got a chance to close the gap, right? Like Jill was, it was never in her situation. She clearly was never even given the chance to say no. And I think that's really my point here is I think that happens a lot. And it's, you know, there's a name for that. It's called benevolent sexism, and it is where we, um, in trying to look out for particularly younger women, um, decisions might be made without their input to make sure that they are cared for. Mm. The problem with benevolent sexism um, in and healthcare is exactly what you just said: is making that choice for her, protecting her from a, a stretch a stretch role perhaps, um, actually uh, means that when she is um, ready for that next level, she may not actually be ready, but Bob will. Yes, yes. And I I really like that you put this term on this because I did not know this. And um, I think that it's really important to, to point out that it comes from a place of of what is perceived as trying to be nice to Jill right? Trying to be kind to Jill, trying not to put pressure on Jill, but what, so it's not like, you know, I say this to people all the time because I think that, you know, I could probably, you could probably share stories and stories, but when you start doing gender equity work or you start talking about gender equity, people get really defensive and it, it doesn't mean that people come to work every day with their bias and think like, I'm going to like destroy the women or I'm going to really hurt the minorities in the room. I don't think most people come to work thinking that, but it's what, it's the end byproduct of our bias and our culture and, and who gets what, where, and it doesn't really matter the intent if the byproduct is something that isn't good. And so I, I constantly, you know, am trying to remind people of that because we all can make mistakes even out of a good, like, so to speak, 
position or good heart for someone, but it's not the right thing to do because it then it ends up making very homogeneous committees and boards and leaders. And we know that diversity in the bottom line is what's best for our, our culture and our organizations. Exactly. And I'll give you another example. And I think that this is something that I often caution my well-meaning male leaders in healthcare. So we all, you know, they've already bought into, we need more women in medicine who are leaders who are going to step up. We want them to be academically succeeding. We want them to be division chairs. And so what they do is they disproportionately put women and minorities often on committees on to lead and particularly in administrative tasks early on. Mm. And so often women are going to step up. If they're given a job to do an administrative task, they're going to do it right. They're going to do it well. And they may be doing it at the expense of doing the research or doing some of the other things that are more recognized when in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so the best thing that that leader might need to do or should do is rather than a a kind of um, pointless appointment on a committee where before that individual is ready is mentor those women as to how they should be spending their time to get to where they want to get to. And for me, or for an academic medicine, often that is building up your publication record. It is not serving on committees and doing um, office housework. Um, And so I think good mentors, um, male or female, they work with their mentees to find out what and help them elucidate. Because honestly, most mentees may not know what they want to do when they grow up. Um, What do you see yourself? And let's make sure that you don't do things that burn bridges and that you do do things that are going to point you in that direction rather than derail. Yes. And I think that I love what you said about having mentorship that really helps you focus on what is going to get you at your end goal, whatever that is, five years, 10 years, because oftentimes we say yes to a million things, but they don't really result in anything that's measurable on your CV or measurable in a promotion and tenure packet. And, and so again, it's another thing that maybe work that you're doing that's bringing you away from your family time or, um, other interests that you have, but it doesn't really result in anything. One thing that really helped me, um, because I think everyone gets overcommitted, um, you know, early on in your career, people asking you to give talks, it's, it's very flattering and it's very important, honestly, in, in medicine that, that you get recognized as an expert in your field, but you reach a point where you've said yes, um, way too often. And one of the, I found myself at several points, but one in particular where I remember it, I, it was crystallized where I was literally getting on a plane to give a talk someplace at, that I'd said yes to six or eight months ago. So at the time it was easier to say yes. And it was a talk I didn't want to give to a group of people I didn't care about. And it wasn't going to really do much for me. And I said, I've got to figure um, this out. And I realized I needed to define and and own the mindful no, mm. as opposed to that mindless yes, that tempting yes, because it's sometimes easier to say yes in the moment. And so I made some 
kind of rules that were very much personal uh, about what I was going to do and how to help me with those yeses and nos. Um, when people say, oh, it's so hard to say yes. And if I say, uh, if I say no, they'll never ask me again. I say, every time you say yes, you are saying no to something else. You're saying no to sleep. You're saying no to your kids. You're saying no to something because yes. there's only 24 hours. That's right. And, and another thing is, I mean, I tell the people that I mentor all the time, you will lose respect if you say yes and you don't deliver more, much more Absolutely. than you will ever lose if you say no. <laughs> right. Because if you say no, you know, you've right? already if delivered. You're a fellow, you know, we all know as faculty, we know which fellows don't deliver. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, the ones who, who you give them a project and they don't finish it. Right. And, and, and so that gets around and you don't want to be that person. You don't. And so you're much more um, well off protecting your professional reputation, saying no to something that you know, you physically or, you know, cannot finish or won't be able to achieve, or you don't want to do than saying yes to please someone and then not delivering. So I tell people all the time, if it, if you're going to, if the answer is going to be no tomorrow and no in a week, say no today, say no immediately. Um, don't hang on to the no, knowing that you're still going to say no in a month, just answer the person, thank them and say no. So I actually made some very specific rules for that stage in life. And one of them was, you know, and there were things that I would do or not do. And one of them, I was not going to write another book chapter because they, they're, were a huge time sink. And at, at Mayo Clinic, they don't give you much in terms of credit for academic advancement. And I had done my number of book chapters. But I always had an exception because my exception was unless it brings you joy. Mm, I love that. And so I got asked to, to, to create a book chapter for Nanette Wenger's book on women and heart disease. Nanette was um, an idol and a mentor and founded the whole specialty of heart disease in women. And boy, did I want to be a part of her book, right? Yeah. So that was so, that was so aligned. Plus, I said, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to mentor some other people along. So because it was on education and heart disease in women, I had two nurse educators be co-authors and they are both became assistant professors too. So it kind of was win, win, win. So looking at ways for doing things that bring you joy, even, and that's your exception. So even if it doesn't do anything else, but bring you joy, I think you should make room for it. Yeah. I love that. So, okay. So looking back, what are some things that you wish you would have known? You're giving us so many amazing, so much great wisdom because so many people listening, you're hitting on questions that I get all the time from women in medicine specifically who have this enormous pressure. And yet at the same time, feelings of failure. And I think that for me, I always described it when I when I just hit the wall of burnout about five years ago and why I started brave enough and all this is because I felt like I was running and the more faster I ran, the farther away the finish line became. And I just, even though I was doing a million things, I felt like a failure and I would have loved to have had some of this wisdom starting out 12 years ago. What, what would you say to yourself that you think would have saved you some headaches and the, you know, the banging your head on the wall? 
Well, one would be, and I, and I think this only comes from uh, some perspective, but if I could give anybody else, you know, early in my career, um, particularly when I, um, I worked less than full-time uh, early on when I had little kids and a physician spouse, and I was not producing academically, and, and I wasn't, quote, keeping up based on the metrics of where I worked, right? So I was comparing myself to others, and, and there were even, you know, cardiology fellows who came on faculty after I who were male who were achieving it, and so you can feel like a failure. Um, and what I, I've realized over the arc in time is there is a time and place for everything. And I am so glad that I took the time to be a little leaning out of the of the workforce. I, I certainly, you know, by any metric of success, I was successful, but um, I didn't have the rocket academic career that maybe I imagined when I was a single medical student. But I ended up um, rounding out my career by finding my passion about what I wanted to do research on and the diversity and inclusion work and women's advocacy work um, in ways that really were serendipitous, and I looked for those things. So I, I guess the advice I would say is instead of looking at what you have not done, is looking at how the things that you ha have done and have passion to do can connect to something else. Mm. An example of that was really early on. I, I will say that research in and of itself did not um, yank my chain. I, I wasn't like my colleagues who every patient who walked in the door was a research question. I was all about the patient relationships and the advocacies and the inequity. And so when I started working in the heart disease and women's space, um, that became a way to advocate for patients and gave me a, a, volunteer, act, um, a volunteer outlet there were other women 20 years ago who were also the only one at their organization. It gave me a peer group and a friend group that lasts today. And so at the time, that was not very valued. But now it's one of the things I hold most dear because those are often, like Dr. Nanette Wenger, um, Dr. Jennifer Merez, and, and Minna Walsh, who were all cardiologists and we were all working on this stuff together nationally, not in the same city so I, I guess it's a long answer to looking for ways to connect your passions, but mm -hmm. also that advance you and be patient with yourself because, you know, I call myself a late bloomer. I didn't reach full professor until I was 53. At the time, um, I had many men at Mayo Clinic, including my husband, who said it was not a big deal. Like being a full professor wasn't a big deal. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted to, to believe it. And I, I, but the day that I was notified that I was promoted, I was kind of mad. I said, what were they talking about? It's an <laughs> effing big deal. Like, it was paradigm shifting deal. I immediately, I was in the middle of two projects where which I was a senior author. I didn't need senior authorship. I made myself a middle author and put senior authorship on two women who were trying to get associate professor. Um, I've been a, I've done that for a man, and that's so powerful to yeah. bring other people along. So I would just say that recognize uh, you know recognize your privilege. And let me tell you, those men who said it's not a big deal to be a full professor, I think it, maybe they thought they would always be one. Yeah, and I didn't. Right. So it seemed like not a big deal. I who thought I'd retire 
from Mayo Clinic as an associate professor and then became a full professor. For me, it seemed like it was a big deal and I recognized it and celebrated it. Yeah, I love that. I love that you recognized it and you celebrated it. I did the same thing. I just made full professor this year and I had a time, you know, because I'm like this very anal retentive person and, and overachiever, like so many physicians. And I, of course, had this like, goal that I gave myself 12 years ago. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it in this time frame, And then I'm going to make this at this time frame. And so when I made it this year, um, I, uh, people that know me well know that every, every rank in academia, I buy myself something really nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I timed it with the SCA meeting in Chicago because I live in Omaha. We don't have great shopping here. So I went to Chicago and I, I said, okay, my one goal besides putting on this meeting is going and finding, going to the Louis Vuitton store and buying myself this bag that I have been wanting for like five years. And it was the best feeling because I had, you know, it was delayed gratification. So I didn't feel guilty spending the money because I'd saved it. <laughs> And I was like, you know what? And everyone that asked me, they're like, oh, I love your bag. I'm like, oh, I got this for making full professor. <laughs> it feels so good, like I you know. say, because I honestly didn't know if I was going to ever, you know, make it. And um, I'm really proud of the fact that I'm a full professor as a woman. I I don't take it lightly at all. And I, I love that you said what you said about empowering others, because I feel the same way. Like now when I get a talk or I get a paper ask, um, before I would have felt a lot of pressure to do it so that I could have it on my CV. But now I can give those opportunities to others. Absolutely. Um, so, okay. So you are a mom, you have kids and you have done different, it said, you said you took, um, off some time and were, was part-time not took off time, but was part-time. Um, how has that now, how, can you talk about like the differences in your work life then and your work life balance? Is it, was it, you know, harder to come back full time? Um, is, you know, what is it like now being a mother of kids, um, and being, you know, you do so much work. I mean, just looking at your, your CV, it's just amazing. Clearly you have not taken your foot off the pedal. Um, so can you give us some insight into what that looks like, um, at, at your age as a mother? Yeah. So I, I would say that, um, just to be fair, I, well, I didn't ever take any time off, um, aside from maternity leave and, um, I didn't work real part-time. I, I worked, um, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 for which a cardiologist is about 45 hours a week. Um, so, so for many people that's full-time. Um, um, and I really, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and I, I would say that, you know, my full-time colleagues were working 60 hours a week. So, so, um, and my husband was, so if there was going to be life at home with children, I, you know, I needed to lean out. What's interesting is, most people, particularly men, assumed that I would um, that I would immediately, when my children went to school, would then ramp up to full time. And um, actually, I continued working part time, taking a day off a week for years. And my day off was Wednesday. And people asked, "Why not a long weekend?" And I said, "Because you know, I never had more than two days in a week to uh, two days in a row to work unless I was on call." And so you always could look through that. And it was a day that I could be consistent to volunteer in nursery school or be the the class mom. But then when my kids didn't need that, because in middle school, they don't want parents there. Right. Um, it was the day that I, you know, I sat on the board and the advisory board for a national nonprofit uh, for women with heart disease, Women mm. Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. Even they knew that Wednesday was my day off. They might 
say, you know, we really could use you to testify because they were based in D.C. Um, and how about that Wednesday? Because we know you have that Wednesday. And so then it became my flex day to do the things that brought me passion that weren't necessarily Mayo Clinic patient related. I love that. Um, and so um, I, I think that the, I assumed I'd go back and, and work. And so to a certain extent, I bought my time to be able to do those. And sometimes, yes, I did work, work, but I could do it in a different location and I could do it in my pajamas. And, um, and so that was a choice that I made. I realized I was not the primary breadwinner in my home. My husband and I both um, make, a, a, you know, a jointly where, and so I was able to do that. It worked for our family. And then honestly, it worked for me professionally because much of the advocacy work, um, that I was doing, um, uh, allowed me to either travel or volunteer in ways that were very meaningful for me. And it sounds like that was your own, you know, personal development that you paired with what brought you joy and what allowed you to, you know, connect with others and inspire others. And I think that one of the things that is so overwhelmingly, I hear so much is women not having even 30 minutes to themselves. I do a coaching class twice a year with 20 women. And my first homework assignment is to, I make them find 30 minutes every day to unplug. And Every one of them is like, well, I have to, at the first week, it's like, I have to drop out of the class. I don't have 30 minutes. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> like that, that, of course you don't, because you haven't, you know, right now in your life, you haven't created that time and you haven't let go of things that you are doing so that you can give yourself 30 minutes of time. 30 minutes of time is only like 2% of our day, but it is really hard to find that time. But to me, that protective time that you give yourself, which for you was Wednesdays after your kids were older, um, that allows you, it doesn't like heal you from every obstacle or challenge in your life, but it allows you to have, or for me, it allows me to have clarity. It brings clarity to like what I'm doing. That's overwhelming that I either need to give to someone else or is not, I'm not really all in, in the mission and what it is that I'm resisting doing or what it is that I'm procrastinating or avoiding doing, which is actually healthy for me. So for me, like that time for myself just brings such clarity. And you may not be surprised at this, but recently in the last two years, I've started asking, um, several male leaders, you know, Hey, what do you, what do you, what's your perception of someone, a woman who works 0.8 and do you know what the response of so many male leaders that I look up to and specifically in anesthesiology has been? Oh, I've been 0.8 for like 10 years. I'm like, what? (laughs) Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What? Like, so my perception of all these male leaders was that they just have always worked. They work full time. You know, they're the people on stages giving lectures and doing research and publishing and all these things. And I'm like, wait a minute, you are 0.8 or you're, you know, 0.7. Oh yeah, Sasha, I, you know, I, I've been doing that the last seven, eight, 10 years. I buy out a day or whatever. And, but they don't talk about it, Sharon. They don't like, nobody knows about it. So so, I was like, what have I been beating myself up for, for like thinking that the minute I do that, I'm killing my career when all these men that are like giants in anesthesiology, I mean, I won't name them, but they do it. (laughs) 
know? So, Sasha, I think you, you bring out something. I do think that there's a little bit of a double standard there um, for men and women because I do think that women who, um, particularly earlier in their career, who work part-time can be viewed as not committed. They may, you know, even if they're fully committed and there's reasons, that's how the, the yes. that's our unconscious bias. And, and what we're seeing um, is a that a growing number of men working part-time, I know that from my own diversity and inclusion Mayo statistics, but a lot of them are more like your colleagues. They are more established. They're not doing it to stay home with kids. They're doing it to be able to travel and give talks and other things. But the point is they're buying their time. And whether you're buying your time with your family, you know, to be there for your kids or buying your time because you want to be able to expand your career in a different way or um, spend time with your elderly mom, having that flexibility in the career can really enhance it. And most physicians um, can figure out a way to afford it. And and so, um, so I think that men and women can benefit from this leaning out or flexible career. Yes. I would make the point that we need as a healthcare house of medicine to figure out perhaps how to enhance flexibility in medicine without having to work part-time and take a pay cut. Yeah. You know, right now I have colleagues who have are working part-time in part because they could not get their organization to give them the flexibility. Even if they had non-patient care duties, they weren't able to do them from eight to midnight at night from home. They, the presentism was very valued. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's one of the other conversations I think we have to have is the person who's walking in at 6.30 um, should also perhaps be the, 6.30 in the morning should also perhaps be the one who's walking out at 4.30. But if you only see a colleague who's leaving early in the afternoon and you say, wow, they, you know, they're not staying late, they're not working hard, we need to quit judging each other. And isn't it interesting, because I am the uh, vice chair of strategy and innovation, so I do a lot of strategic planning, and then I do a lot of new program development things. And it's funny to me because I often think to myself, like we are really good at innovating when it comes to patient care and when it comes to um, uh, therapy and drug treatments and surgical treatments. I mean, we, especially in the cardiac OR, you know, we're like MacGyver, but when it comes to simple things like flexibility of work scheduling, We have this like archaic system in our mind of what a physician looks like, what a full-time committed good physician looks like, you know, one that is really committed to medicine. And we, we just can't wrap our minds around different work flexibility or scheduling. And I love what you said about, you know, the, the person who's there at, you know, six 30 in the morning is not, uh, you know, may, may not be viewed by anyone that, you know, and, and it's so interesting to me because, um, Oftentimes at work at the hospital, I'll see nurses um, or uh, different ancillary staff um, exercising on their break. And I'm always like a ping of jealousy because I'm like, man, I would give anything to be able to like throw on tennis shoes and do some laps around, but I can't do that. Maybe I actually could have time to do that, but it's the more the perception, right? It's like, 
a physician doing it is not okay, even though we should be leaders in, in our health and our activities. And if that's the time that I can actually exercise from noon to one, then I should be doing it. But it's just funny because we have this kind of, we have the, this culture of medicine that really is very inflexible when it comes to certain areas that we failed to innovate about our work life. So, so let me throw in um, uh, at least one more, what I wish I knew then. Yes, I would and love it. it. relates to, to what you just said about flexibility, because this is something that I think physicians falsely think they have some flexibility, um, because, and that is sleep, all right? So I, I live a pretty healthy life. I am a cardiologist. I, I walk the walk for the most part. I eat well. I exercise daily. I do all of those things things. But I must say until about the past five to 10 years, I also prided myself on not needing much sleep, being able to multitask. um, uh, And physicians in general do because of call and because of our culture. And then if you really look at the data, people who do not sleep at least seven hours a night, they are working drunk. They are driving drunk. They, you know, we are impaired people. Mm -hmm. Um, who are at increased risk for burnout and health and actually cardiovascular issues, atrial fibrillation and heart failure. So, you know, faced with the data as a scientist myself, I had to admit that my sleep habits were pretty darn bad. Mm. And and you talked about the 30 minutes to oneself. Um, I think that that, um, sleep uh, uh, quality and amount... Um, and getting off our, you know, our screens, whatever it takes, but making it a priority. And I, I still am not there where I'd like to be. That's a, that's a piece of work that I, I think. But I look at my sleep habits now, and I do make an active effort. I look at the clock if it's getting later and I've got one more thing to do. And I used to just stay up and do it. And I said, you know what? I'm, I, I am not going to feel as well. And even if I don't feel any different, I will not be where I need to be. I'll be at more risk for burnout. I'll be at more risk for my unconscious biases being activated at work or at home or with my family. So if, that is one thing that I would say I am very much a work in progress, but the science is so incredibly compelling and physicians think they are exempt. So I would like to dissuade them. Yes. And I, I love that you bring this up because anyone that would look at you on social media or uh, when you're speaking on a stage or read your impressive bio would think that you don't sleep, um, would think that you are, you know, a workaholic who works 24 seven. And I'm sure that the temptation as you know, the more success one gets, the more opportunities arise is there to just, you know, work around the clock. And I certainly am guilty of that at times. Um, but I love that you're being so honest and vulnerable about this because I think that we can easily fall into the, you know, the trap of really, um, celebrating the physician martyr and bragging about how hard we're working and really looking up to those people. Um, but the data is there and, and you're right. You know, when we are responsible for people's lives and decisions that make, uh, you know, life and death decisions, we have to we have to sleep. We have to take care of ourselves. And we have to find that 30 minutes of alone time where we can just gain clarity and remember things. Um, you know, sometimes I, I just, I'm, 
I, I always tell the story, but it's, it's pretty funny. Um, like two years ago I was in the operating room and it was like the first day of school. And I, I am, you know, wondering how my little guy is doing. It's his first day of school and I'm in the operating room and I get a phone call from the school and I'm thinking, Oh my goodness, you know, he's, this is kindergarten and he's like fallen and broken an arm or something. And they're like, um, Dr. Shilkut, um, you know, Levi cannot come back to school tomorrow. I'm like, Oh my goodness, what did he do? And they're like, well, he doesn't have any of his shots. Oh my gosh. You know, I just totally forgot like my fourth child. I mean, I, it's not, I'm believe me, I believe in vaccination, but I was like, I am so sorry. I will get it done. So of course, you know, I call my pediatrician. I'm like, I am so embarrassed that somehow I just didn't bring him in for his kindergarten physical. And he has no, we, he, they don't have any records of his immunizations. <laughs> and so, yeah. but it's, it was, I was so busy, you know, I just spaced that out. And I think that one thing that I know about myself is for me to turn down my brain and really unwind, I have to be alone. And I'm an extrovert. I could be with people all day, but that is so important. So thank you for coming on the show and for sharing so many amazing pearls of wisdom today and giving us a look in your career and giving us encouragement and, and some hope and some challenges. I love the mindful no rules that you gave us. Um, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule and being here with us. Well, thank you, Sasha. It was a pleasure. Um, both the conversation and the topics and just getting to spend some time with you. Well, if you're listening, I hope that we gave you some encouragement today. I hope that you will understand how valuable you are. If you are listening and you are in medicine, we need you. We need you to stay in medicine. We want you to find the joy. It's so important. And so I want to thank our guest and as always live brave. This has been an HSG production.